Welcome to this episode of the PA Path Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lohenry, and we are glad you could join us as we seek to better understand the PA profession. I'm more comfortable when the PA residents are in my ER taking care of patients than I was when the MD residents were there. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us today with our 20th episode for our first season. That quote was from an ER director related to a transition from medical residents in orthopedics to PA residents in orthopedics at a major hospital in the Chicagoland area many years ago. I put that in there to entice you to listen to two good friends who talk about the Rosalind Franklin PA program, but also about postgraduate training for PAs and about a very unique role for a PA in orthopedics. We also talk about the importance of mentorship and how appropriate that we are interviewing Dr. Patrick Knott, who is one of my long-term mentors with the PA profession, and in fact, was the first non-military PA I ever met. We also interview Mr. Jason Radke, the program director at Rosalind Franklin, who was a student in my alma mater where I first cut my teeth as a PA educator. You can learn more about both of these great leaders and about Rosalind Franklin University in our show notes section of the blog on our website, papathpodcast.com. We've also added a new feature with transcripts for those who prefer to read instead of listening to the podcast. So we have plenty to offer today. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We're excited to learn more about Rosalind Franklin University and your individual paths to becoming PAs. Patrick, let's start with you since you are the senior member of the team today. And you have such a great history in your background of becoming a PA and serving the PA leadership roles. How about starting with the time you decided to become a PA? Tell us about that decision and the path to becoming a PA. Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Kevin. I I appreciate being here and I'm happy to speak to your audience. Um, So I was an undergraduate at University of Iowa in the 1980s, and I was thinking about going to medical school and decided to volunteer at a free clinic. And when I was there, I was connected with a bunch of folks that were seeing patients that I thought were physicians. And um, after learning that they were not, in fact, physicians, they were PAs, I started to investigate the PA profession a little bit more and um, learned that I was at, at a school that had a great PA program. And so I sort of switched my major from pre-med to pre-PA and finished my undergrad degree in biology and got into the PA program there. So then I had a, a, a two-year stint with the University of Iowa PA program. I graduated in the, the very last program that offered a bachelor's degree. So that wow. was a big plus. And then uh, from there, I actually went to the University of Michigan and did what sort of amounted to kind of a year of surgical training. We worked a lot like residents at the hospital, and uh, I was assigned to cardiovascular surgery. So I did a year of CV surgery training before coming back to the Chicago area. And, and how prevalent back then were PAs at the University of Michigan system? You know, there were quite a bit. I think there were like 15 PAs in the Department of Surgery. And so I really had some great mentors there. I had some, some PAs that had been working at the hospital for 10 or 15 years that really trained me. So we took call in the ICU all night and managed the ORs and actually did heart transplant. And so went out on transplant runs. And so it was a it was a very exciting first job. And it was really great to have, you know, some mentors that really sort of taught me how to be a responsible PA. 
And, and Jason may not know this story, but you and I met a long time ago before I became a PA. You were a orthopedic PA in St. Charles, Illinois. Well, at the time I was a medical assistant, I'd just gotten out of the Navy and my physician that I worked for had introduced me to you. We had a brief lunch while you told me about the profession, but so, so at one point in time, you, you decided to go into orthopedics. Talk about that decision. Yeah, so really after being at University of Michigan for a year, I was getting married. We were interested in having a family. And, and so we decided to really move back to the Chicagoland area and have our family closer to our own family. And so I uh, came back to Chicago, got a job, first with a, a guy in the Chicago area who was on staff at Rush Press St. Luke's and did sports medicine. So I did ortho with him for several years and then moved out to St. Charles and, and joined this group called Fox Valley Orthopedics and uh, did general orthopedics there. Were you the first PA at that group, Patrick? I was the first PA. Um, yeah, I was the first PA with, with the first guy I, I got hired by and the first PA uh, by Fox Valley Orthopedics. I was not the first PA at the hospital. So we were on staff at Delnor Hospital and there was one PA who preceded me there, uh, but we were also on staff at a second hospital called St. Joe's in Elgin and I was the first PA there. So it was, it was those years where you spent a lot of time talking about what you were and what a PA was and how I trained and what things I was responsible for. So I, I remember being very specific about how I wanted to how I wanted to start my career at those places and how I wanted to interact with the referring physicians and the nursing staff and everybody else who was at the hospital. I don't know if you sensed this when you started there. When I, when I started Central DuPage Hospital, which is just right down the street as a PA, I was the second PA there. And I found the docs to be really, for the most part, largely open to the idea and very welcoming. Yeah, I did, especially the older physicians. It was interesting. The guys that were brand new out of residency were a little bit more nervous about, you know, sort of delegating. But the the older guys who had been in practice for a while were a lot more used to the the idea of sort of delegating some of that responsibility. A couple of the guys that I first started with had been in the military. So I think that helped because they probably had some sense of how to do things from the military. But I do remember being very intentional about my interactions with all of the physicians who were referring to us and the emergency room physicians and the nursing staff, trying to really make a good impression so that you know, the, the folks following me would have an easier time. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the same thing. It was, it was a little bit of pressure to make sure that you set it up right so that people would continue to be positive towards the profession. Yeah. Jason, how about you, uh, Jason? I, let me, for, for our audience, I have to describe you because you have this quintessential look. You, you are, as long as I've known you, you've, I think forever have had a bow tie on that's usually very brightly colored, which I think fits really well with a clinical path that you chose. So tell us about your path to PA and ultimately why you went into your specialty. Sure. And also thanks again for, for the invite. I'm glad to be here today. Um, I think my story, funny enough, um, mimics Patrick's a little bit at University of Iowa for my start, but I think it sounds a lot like the paths that most students we hear about today as well. So I um, started at University of Iowa in undergrad there, and I wanted to get some experience because I knew I wanted to go into healthcare. Uh, so I was working as a nursing assistant at the the hospital there, and definitely that pre med path. But 
sort of similarly to what Patrick described. Um, as I was on the floor um, working in a solid uh, tumor unit, really got to know the PAs on, on staff. And um, they were the ones who were there working every day, running that floor. And so just in getting to know them and the time they spent with patients, it seemed like a really good fit. So I actually wound up taking a gap year after graduating to kind of get my bearings. And I'd been applying to med schools and going to interviews, but wanted to really make sure that I found a good fit. And it's definitely been that. So graduated from there, um, took that gap year, and then came back to home here in Illinois and went to Midwestern. Or actually met you. <laughs> That's right. Six to talk about six degrees of separation. Uh, this is uh, quite the podcast because I, I was one of your teachers, Jason, before you became a PA, and, and uh, of course Patrick was the reason I ended in, in, ended up in the profession. I think in large part was Patrick's guidance early on. So my well, you, it's been fun. <laughs> totally, totally. And and then when you left Midwestern, you decided to go into which specialty? So I actually started off in emergency medicine, um, working at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago. So a level one trauma center and very busy, but it was a really great experience as a new grad, Uh, a lot of stress and a a high learning curve there, but um, it really helped tee up the rest of my career by having that experience. You get really good at differentials and, and just getting used to kind of whatever walks through the door you can handle. So um, so it was a great experience, was there for about a year, and then my passion has always been pediatrics. And so when an opportunity opened to work in a private clinic uh, out in the suburbs here in Chicago area, uh, I took took that opportunity and was there for about seven years almost. So, so yeah, and that was, again, has been a passion of mine. Um, and so was very excited to have that opportunity. It's hard for PAs sometimes to get into pediatrics. And so when those things open up, you take them. Yeah, and I don't know if this is still the case, but back in the day, it seemed like about 5% of us ended up in pediatrics. Is that staying pretty constant or has it changed? Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot more of our grads uh, getting into pediatrics. I think where it tends to be is a lot of the hospital-based. And so we're seeing a little bit more uh, movement there. But you're right, it's still one of the, the harder areas for PAs to get in in some ways. Yeah. So uh, ultimately, both of you ended up in education. Why don't we start talking about that decision and how you ended up at Rosalind Franklin? Sure. Well, I can start. And first of all, I heard you try to slip in a little blame there of how I got you into PA education. So I just want you to know the statute of limitations on that has run out. Um, Understood. For me, for me, it was very uh, haphazard. I was practicing at at Fox Valley Orthopedics in the Chicago suburbs and Rosalind Franklin University, which at the time was called Finch University of Health Sciences, was uh, considering starting a PA program and they were looking for PAs in the area to be on an advisory committee. And they just called me up out of the blue and said, would you come up and be on our committee and talk to us about how to get a program started? And so I was on that committee and then got asked to you know, give a single lecture and then eventually a couple of lectures and then to teach a whole course and to take one day a week. Uh, so, you know, slowly kind of eased into it. But it was interesting because I felt like even though I really hadn't intended to go into education, um, I was spending so much of my day doing patient education. 
you know, the surgeon would come in and say, here's what's wrong with you. Here's the surgery we need to do. And then they were out the door and I would um, sit and explain to the patient everything that had happened and what was going on and what was going to happen during the surgery and what it was going to be like and answer all their questions. And I just started feeling like, you know, I, that's really a big piece of a PA's job. So, so um, teaching PA students sort of came naturally after doing that for a while. And then you ended up becoming the director and then also went through a variety of different leadership roles to help that institution get started yeah. and established, correct? Yeah, I happened to be at the program when the program director and assistant director left sort of unexpectedly all of a sudden. And I was a part-time faculty at the time and we had an accreditation visit coming up and it was just a lot of concern about, you know, making sure we had a full faculty and that things were going well. and. And they asked me if I would consider being the program director. And so I went to my clinical supervisors at Fox Valley and said, I don't know, I got this opportunity to do this. And, you know, I know it would mean leaving the practice and I'm not sure what to do. And, and they said, you know, these opportunities only come along once in a lifetime. You got to do this. You got to jump at it. So they, they encouraged me to take it. And I stayed on seeing patients with them one day a week for a while and sort of transitioned into full-time PA education. So I was the program director for 16 or 17 years. And then we actually hired Michael Statler, the current BAEA president, to be our program director for a while. So she was here. I think those were the years that we hired Jason. He joined the group. And then as Michael transitioned uh, back to Texas, uh, Jason stepped in as the, the next program director. Outstanding. And Jason, for you, Tell us about your decision to, to leave full-time pediatrics and become an educator. So I had always had education, PE education on the horizon, but uh, it came a little bit sooner than I expected. And I was looking for a change at that time and interviewed at Rosalind Franklin just on a whim uh, to see. I just absolutely loved the environment here, uh, the faculty and the students that I met at that time. It seemed like a really good fit. And then the job that I first took was actually clinical coordinator. So um, I know how tough that job can be. So I was a little leery about that at first, but at the same time they said, you know, we have this free peds clinic. That's a community clinic that we run that we're looking for someone to take over. So it was kind of this perfect, perfect offer of um, being able to get into education and then still keep this clinical piece for this position specifically. So, so yeah, just kind of lightning struck and it came in a perfect time. And then the director role, what was the motivation for that? Well, so another thing that kind of came <laughs> came out of nowhere in some ways, I think I'd taken on a few roles throughout the department. Uh, so started as clinical coordinator, um, moved up to director of experiential learning. So had a little bit more of a role in simulation, especially for the clinical year. And then took over for a brief time as the director of didactic education when that current director stepped down. And then like Patrick said, when Michael Statler moved up for a short time into the dean's office um, before she left for Texas, they offered that position to me. So, so it was not, again, necessarily on my radar timing-wise um, at that point, but it seemed like a, a good time and a good move. Yeah. So, and, and Rosalind Franklin, as I recall, is the first medical school in the country to be named after a pioneering woman. I wonder if you could tell us about Rosalind Franklin, what sets it apart from others, but also your simulation, you guys were on the cutting edge of simulation before anybody else I knew back in the day when I was at Midwestern in Chicago. So 
Tell us about your, your simulation too, because I think you've always been leading the charge on that. Yeah, well, I could start with the history and I'll let Jason talk about simulation. Um, the history really goes back much farther than our renaming. You know, Chicago Medical School has been around for about 110 years. And if you look back at our very first student photos in the lobby, our very first graduating class had an African-American woman in the front row. It was a school that just embraced diversity and um, inclusion from the very beginning. The early 1900s were years where you pretty much didn't get into medical school in the city of Chicago at the other institutions that were here unless you were a white Christian male. And so there were Jewish students who felt really persecuted and unable to get into medical school, uh, women, people of color. And so we had students from all of those groups from the very beginning. So I think that really helped us, you know, that, that history helped us really understand the role that Rosalind Franklin had in history and, you know, how women in science at the time were really a, an underrepresented group. And so it was really exciting when we renamed our university after her. And I think that really energized a lot of people here to think about inclusion and diversity in ways that we hadn't before. So Jason, the simulation part in the program itself, how long is it? Uh, What's your typical pitch to students? So with, with our simulation, we definitely use it throughout, I'll say the entire program. And we have a few different modalities that we utilize. So on our main campus, we have a kind of smaller sim center that has an inpatient setting. It has some recently built out hospital rooms. And then there's also a clinic-based setting that we use for a lot of our exams. So have the toe exams, um, practice with standardized patients. And so each of these has that feel of being in a clinic setting or in a hospital setting. We have a great deal of mannequins and and a setup to be able to record all of our student activities. And so we utilize that throughout our didactic year in in that training of just getting students used to dealing with patients um, in a pretty low impact uh, setting. And we also do have out um, in the suburbs, we built out on the campus of um, Centegra on Northwestern. We actually have a two floor setting where they've built out emergency room, again, an inpatient setting in OB. Um, There's an OR where students can scrub in. And so it's this feels like a hospital, looks like a hospital. Um, And so we utilize that, especially again, in our first year of getting our students out there. And it's a lot of that muscle memory as well. So they're scrubbing into an OR, walking into an OR. Um, doing some of those techniques, and and it has really that feel. So we have at least one session out there, um, one day where they get to experience a lot of that. And then for our second year, we have a few days where they come back um, to do some of those simulations so that we're doing some of that summative piece to the education um, and making sure. So we get to use those settings, like I said, emergency room, uh, and be able to see how they kind of function in that setting together. So when your students get into the clinical settings, you'd data suggests that they are uh, much better prepared than perhaps other schools are able to do because of those opportunities. Absolutely. And like I said, a lot of these things, there's a little bit of that, that muscle memory that happens. And so if you're able to really get into that setting, you know, it takes a little time for students to get used to things like mannequins. 
but they they talk and have pulses and respirations and everything. So as students get going with that, they get really used to that type of setting. And it lends itself to to being able to prepare for those rotations and, and translate that really well. When you think about the typical applicant that you're hoping to attract, what are you all looking for at Roslyn Franklin? Well, you know, I think we're, we're looking for students that are well prepared to, to become PAs. And, and, you know, that preparation can take a variety of forms. Good, good academic background, good sort of life experiences, um, good patient care experience in one way or another. But I think we're also thinking about our community. You know, it, it's, it's sort of like when we talk to our students about the difference between taking care of an individual patient and taking care of a, a community and, and doing what's right for the community. And I think we're, we're really spending a lot of time now thinking about our community and saying what types of folks are up underrepresented in medicine and how do we try to fill those gaps? How do we look for folks that will take care of parts of our community that have not been taken care of well in the past? And how do we bridge some of those inequities in medicine? So that's, that's just become a really important part of our focus. And, and we're asking applicants how they can help fill those gaps, where they fit in and, and uh, how they can help serve folks that have not gotten the, the services they've needed over the decades. So if I'm an applicant and I'm looking at your mission statement and understanding that premise, um, what are some of the things that your successful applicants have done to demonstrate that? Well, and I'll build off of what Patrick's saying a little too, in the sense that when we look at our applicant pool, we are doing that really holistic review. And so, yes, we need people to be prepared and to perform uh, well GPA wise, but I think we look at a lot of other aspects. And so looking at things like uh, leadership um, volunteerism and having this type of candidate that is pretty well-rounded and is going to contribute not just to our program, but to the profession in general. You know, we also take into thing into consideration things like the performance during the last 60 hours of their, their academic career. And so we know that for some students, if they're a first gen, um, college grad, it may have taken a little bit of time to get used to um, going to school. And so we try to take into account all of those things. Um, ultimately what we're trying to do is build a class that is going to go out there and like Patrick said, work in the community. Um, and above and beyond that, we, we want good PAs. And so, um, good PAs doesn't always just translate to that GPA. We're looking for really well-rounded people um, who can build that profession. So when you think about the, the entire experience at Roslyn Franklin, what do you think most alums reflect on as the, the things that they cherish the most about being in your institution? I think for certain it's the people. Of the things you remember about school as you look back, really the only important things are the relationships that you make. I think our students make amazing relationships amongst each other and the classes really build a lot of camaraderie. We try very hard not to promote any sort of competition between students and just the opposite to promote team building and working together and helping one another. And um, it's, it's just great when you see a student who's struggling in one area of the curriculum and, and his or her classmates jump in and help them out. And then three months later, we're in a different part of the curriculum and they're really strong. 
and they're returning that favor and helping out their fellow classmates. I just see so many really great examples of how they're working together. And then obviously we're trying hard to, to build good relationships between faculty and students as well. And so for me, clearly the best part of our, my job is seeing students become really successful, both while they're in PA school and after they graduate and hearing back from them, um, getting, getting pictures from them when they get a new job or get married or have a baby or move to a new city or all the, all the exciting things that, that happen in their lives and to get to hear back from them and hear that they're doing well and, and successful. That's, that's kind of the reward we're looking for. So uh, clearly, I mean, we got a lot of neat things going on here, but it's the, it's the people and the relationships that matter. Yeah, that's fantastic. Even seeing one of them become a program director for a school in the area, that's really rich and rewarding as well, isn't it? You know, we have had a lot of students go into PA education and we have, I think we have six or seven alums that are in uh, as program directors or sort of uh, leaders in PA, PA education. What do you think is the, the crux of that? Why do so many of your students end up in PA education? Well, I can jump in a little and say that I think a lot of the mentorship that is here. So as Patrick talked about, there's this sort of community that we have. Um, I think that as students go through the program, there is that connection that's maintained. Um, a lot of them reach out and offer to be preceptors, want to be preceptors. And then eventually, I think, really get bit by that teaching bug. Um, and so I think that you know, some of it is that a lot of what we do as PAs is teaching out in, out in those clinics and in the community. But I think that there is this kind of special connection that, that comes back here. I know that when I came on and started working here, I was one of few people who hadn't graduated from this university who was working in our department. Um, and we still have a, about half of our people who were grads. Um, and so I think that that their experience here just they they want to stay connected. Um, and I also think that, like I said a little earlier, the mentorship here, um, when you asked what kind of got me to program director, that's really what it is. Um, between Patrick and Michael, having two strong mentors along the way uh, who, who guide, um, I think we as faculty feel that within the department and, and our students feel that a lot. Yeah, I'd say, you know, given your pedigree in terms of the people you've been around, uh, Jason, you've got two of the finest. and. People have been national presidents of organizations and have led the PA profession for the last several decades. So that's pretty cool. Absolutely. So gentlemen, I wonder if we can switch gears a little bit and talk about life after PA school, because Patrick, you have a unique perspective, I think, in that you've led a postgraduate residency program in orthopedics before. And I think that's always a question for PAs and even for the general public, kind of what, why do some PAs go into postgraduate training programs and others don't. And is it necessary? You know, should I be thinking about that? So could you maybe walk us through uh, that process, uh, that thought process in terms of the pros and cons and, and what you've gained from those experiences as well? Sure. Uh, our residency program at Illinois Boner Joint Institute is still going strong um, after about 25 years. It was really born out of necessity. It's at a, it, it, it is um, located at a big teaching hospital in Chicago. 
And that hospital had residents from one of the big medical schools, uh, MD orthopedic residents that, that covered that hospital for decades. And, you know, the hospital was joining one big new health system and the, that university was forming its own new health system and those two health systems weren't getting along. And part of the fallout was the hospital found out in about March that as of July 1, they wouldn't have any MD residents anymore. And so I happened to meet these guys at Illinois Boner Joint Institute and we started talking about the problems they were having. And they weren't sure how they were gonna manage a huge tertiary care hospital without residents. And so I suggested that we start a PA residency program to replace the MD residency program that was there. So between March and July 1, we set it up and we got a first class in and they did really well. Clearly they didn't have the expertise or the years of experience that an MD resident had, especially like a, a fourth or a fifth year MD resident. But when we graduated that first class, I remember the director of the emergency room at this you know, busy tertiary care center that has a helicopter and flying in trauma patients and everything else, actually came to the group and said, I'm more comfortable when the PA residents are in my ER taking care of patients than I was when the MD residents were there. And people were wow. shocked to hear that. And he said, the reason is, because it's sort of this mentality that the MD resident is trying to prove that he or she is competent and ready to go and has learned all the orthopedics already and trying to make decisions independently when maybe they shouldn't be. You know, they're hoping not to wake the attending up at three in the morning to just handle the problem on their own. So when the attending shows up, they can say, look at the wonderful job I did last night. The PA residents were completely different. The PA residents understood that they were supposed to be working as a, an extension of the attending. And so they always woke them up at three in the morning and talked about the case and said, this is what I intend to do. What do you think? Am I doing the right thing? So the, the director of the ER said, I, I know that the, the plan that's being carried out is always the plan that's directed by the attending. And I'm more comfortable with that than a resident. So we just, we've had this wonderful experience. I think for somebody thinking about going into a residency, it's really this idea of, do you want to extend your PA training a little bit longer? Do you want to have a clinical rot rotation that's in one specialty, in, in this case, orthopedic surgery, where you get a lot of responsibility, you see a lot of cases. I mean, our, our residents scrub in on, on literally thousands of cases in a year, and it's just way more experience they would get taking a job out in the community. So they get, they get good mentorship, somebody watching over them carefully, a lot of experience taking care of patients, high-level patients that are really sick and have lots going on. And they, they finish that year feeling really confident about their abilities and, and ready to start in a, in a private practice where they can handle that responsibility and they know what to do. So I think it's really good for those students. We used to really go after the students that were kind of top of their class, you know, the real gunners. But I think honestly, it's just as useful for a student who's graduating and feeling a little tenuous, like they're just not sure they're ready to go into practice yet. And they're, they're just a little shaky and they, they're, they need another year. And so it, it provides this great year of a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of mentorship. 
And I would imagine they're very employable when they leave because that model of teaching is very similar to what all physicians go through. Yeah, I think physicians really identify with that. When you say you've done a residency, they, they sort of understand that kind of training model where you're expected to do it, but your attending's looking over your shoulder all the time and making sure you do it correctly and constantly kind of quizzing you and, and making sure that you really understand the mechanism about why you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, you go to conferences, you learn about sort of the newest things. And it's just, I think, a really good model. That's fantastic. So, Jason, when you think about students that are coming to you for advice about this, what's your kind of go-to advice related to the, you know, should I should I go on another year for training or not? Is it similar to what Patrick said in terms of those that are a little shaky, or do you have a different opinion? I, I think it's both, and and I definitely agree with what he said. I think you know more and more we're seeing things like the emergency room residencies as well. And so going into emergency med, sometimes, especially in some areas of the country, that may be almost the only way to get a foot in the door. And and so I think it sometimes it depends on the specialty that someone's going into and whether or not that's a really great way to get a really robust experience and the knowledge base that you need. And then I think, like was mentioned earlier too, the the category of student who is just a little bit um, shaky out there needs a little bit more time, or is also just kind of unsure of what they want to do, and getting another group of skill set under their belt it allows them to be more marketable um, as well. And so I think I think there's a really good place for those um, for a lot of students that are getting out there. Patrick, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about uh, orthopedics because you've also, you, you have such a diverse background. You, you've led the residency, but you've also delved into the medical equipment component of life in terms of inventing things. I wonder if you could share a little bit about that experience and what, what drove you to explore that area of the healthcare field. Sure. So I was in a in, in this practice at Illinois Bone & Joint working with a surgeon who had done both a, a spine fellowship and a pediatrics fellowship. And so he was the spine deformity specialist and we did a lot of work in scoliosis. We had thinking about the amount of radiation we were exposing our patients to by taking so many x-rays of their spine, especially during a time in their life, you know, scoliosis affects a lot of adolescents and, and females to males at a ratio of about seven to one. So a lot of young females who were in their adolescent growth spurt and they were getting monthly x-rays of their spine and really looked at the evidence that the epidemiologists were putting out showing that women who were in their 50s who had scoliosis as teenagers were about eight times higher uh, chance of getting breast cancer. So we knew that we were doing harm by so many x-rays at such a, a key point in their life when there's, they're growing and they have a lot of rapid cell turnover and those cells are going to be more uh, susceptible to damage from radiation. So we started looking at, at non-radiographic spine imaging. And I, I went out looking for a number of companies that had new technology. And we worked with a couple where we sort of showed it didn't really work well. But then we eventually came upon this company that was using something called surface topography, where they scan the surface of the back, and then they use a 3D mathematical model to reconstruct where the spine is underneath the skin. And so it was a German company. We were the first to um, 
use this scanner in the United States, and then sort of started a research lab where we first tried to prove whether or not it was reliable, and then tried to look at the, the variety of different ways that we could use it. So I've moved that lab to the university, you know, published a lot of papers on sort of how this technology can be used. And we really expanded out into lots of different areas. So in the beginning, we were just using it to measure kids with scoliosis, but we've put a motion component into it so we can see the spine in motion. And now we're using it in sports medicine. We're using it in neuromuscular things like Parkinson's or stroke or cerebral palsy. So there's like a lot of a lot of neat applications. So we kind of founded a, a U.S. company, and I started work on trying to get this this technology into other part, you know, other other hospitals and clinics across the United States. So that that opportunity that you've started with, as the data by expanding to other other institutions, have, have you just collected more and more data that's helping you nail this down even further scientifically? Yeah, we have. We got a study group together where we could take data from different hospitals and put it all together into one pool. And then we'd get the physicians from all of those different hospitals together and we'd write papers together. And so it, it's it's turned out to be a really fun sort of side gig for me in terms of how the how the research sort of gets put out there as a as a product for hospitals and clinics to use. I wonder, as a, maybe a last question, if we could look back, let's say, when you're when you're finally hanging up your stethoscope and, and you're going to sit back on a porch, Patrick, you'll probably be off photographing nature somewhere. And Jason, I'm not sure for you, but what you, as you look back, what are you? What do you think you're going to be most proud of in your careers? That's a tough one. I I think you know I think this path has been one that every step so far has been pretty unexpected. But I think at, at every step of the way, there's been something that's been really rewarding. And so, you know, I look back on, on pediatrics in my time there, you know, it can be very bread and butter pediatrics, a lot of runny noses and, and dirty diapers. But, but when you get those few cases where they really stand out, that you really helped a kid, helped a family through a tough time, something like that, I, mean, I think those are always things that stick with you. And the thing with PA education is that you are kind of pumping out all these grads and and sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees. But um, at the end of the day, when you look at the volume of providers that you're sending there out into the world who then help others, who then mentor others. And so even in my short time so far in education, you already start to see that. And so I think just knowing that, that you have that impact and if you're training students in the way that you want them to be as PAs, um, and you start to see that reflected back. I think that's, that's a pretty amazing thing. That's a great answer. I agree. And, and it's a great answer because it's hard sometimes when you're mid-career, right in the thick of it, to really have that perspective and look ahead and see what's going to be important to you years from now. You know, I've got a little bit more perspective than Jason does in being able to look back and Clearly for me, like the only thing that matters and the thing that, that, that I'll look back on with sort of the, the best memories are the, the people that I've been able to interact with over time. People like you, Kevin, honestly, who, you know, I mean, when I, when I first met you and interacted with you, it was such a little thing, you know, to have lunch and talk about the profession and, 
you know, maybe get you interested in being a PA. And then when you got into PA education to reconnect again and sort of get you introduced to people at PAEA and, you know, and say, gee, I know you feel brand new here, but let me, let me take you around and introduce you to some folks. And then sort of just seeing what got, what happened from that, how that, how that turned into to a huge leadership opportunity for you. And so, so it, it's that, it's that multiplication effect, you know, where as a clinician, you try every day to help a bunch of people, but at the end of the day, you know, there's millions of people that you couldn't help and that, you know, your, your day ended and you only were able to do so much. But when you're in PA education and you keep training people more and more and more people, I mean, I've been here through 2000 graduates now, and I think all 2000 of those graduates are out helping people every single day. And so you start to multiply, well, how many people would that be in a year? It's just mind boggling. And so that for me, it's, it's, it's the, the people and sort of what happens with those folks after you interact with them that is, that is just sort of the most enjoyable and rewarding part of my career. I have to say, Patrick, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for that subpoena for being a professional stalker because you know, we started at that, that lunch and then I ended up becoming a PA at a, at a crosstown PA school. And then I ended up in PA education. Then I ended up getting my doctor from the same institution you got yours. Then, I, then you invited me to join the finance committee just to sit back and, and learn for PAEA. And lo and behold, a few years later, I'm the president like you were. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's been a real treat to follow you in your footsteps. And when you think about mentorship, I'm not surprised Jason talked about that with you and Michael. I think that's got to be a significant legacy for you, Patrick, and, and what you've done at Roslyn Franklin and throughout the PA world. And Jason, I'm sure you're going to emulate that and already have in your current role as program director. So thank you both for taking the time to share your thoughts and insights and yeah. share the really amazing stuff going on at Roslyn Franklin. I, I, I think people need to take a look at your school because clearly the DNA there is special. Thanks. You know, I, I had another major title change this last week, uh, Kevin, that you may not know about. I became a grandfather for the first time. So, uh, oh my gosh, congrats. that's been a new stage of my life that I'm really excited about and, and really happy. So I have a little granddaughter who's a week old. And uh, uh, so that's that's your next uh, your next thing to emulate. <laughs> Congratulations. And, and look, you guys have a great uh, winter. Good luck with the continuation of uh, excellence at your institution and, and, and those around you. And thank you again for taking the time. Thanks so much for having us. We want to thank our guests, Dr. Patrick Knott and Mr. Jason Radke for joining us today. The conversation reminds us all of how important spending just a little time with others can be for supporting others to chase their dreams. Tune in next week as we speak with Mr. Jonathan Bowser, Associate Dean and Director of the University of Colorado Child Health Associate PA Program. We speak with John about the program, which is one of the longest standing PA schools in our country, and we explore John's background in leadership from his national and international work. Until next time, we wish you success with whatever path you are walking in life, and thank you for joining us. The purpose of this podcast is to provide news and information on the PA profession and is for informational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and guests and do not necessarily reflect 
the official position or policy of the University of Southern California.